Hey there, history fans! And welcome back to another episode of the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. In today's episode, we are covering, well, technically, we're covering the next episode in our, our series on the Wars of the Roses. Today, it's all about the Yorkists. If you were confused, last one. This one gets worse. This this is gonna make it even more confusing. Like Although I, I expect zero clarification. I'm actually working on that, but I feel like next week's or well, next in portion weeks. of this when we talk about the Tudors and we get into <sighs> the Tudor family line prior to Henry the Seventh, I feel like that's gonna start getting things complicated. But I I feel like I found a bit of a summary of all of this at the very end of this episode. Very nice. Yeah, I'm hoping it makes sense. All righty. Shall we jump right into it? You go right ahead. All right. Uh, I kept the general family history really short because I have five pages on everything else. <laughs> so kind of kept this short. So the House of York was originally founded by Edmund of Langley, the fifth son of King Edward III. The title of Duke of York was later passed on to Richard III. And Richard III was the first York to have challenged anyone for the throne. He specifically challenged Henry VI. Go back to Lancaster. Go back to our previous episode. If you did not listen to our previous episode, this will definitely not make any sense. The House of Lancaster at this time had been on the English throne for about three generations. They had occupied the English throne. And only after Richard III took up arms against Henry VI and proclaimed the right to the crown did that change. And the Lords of the House actually agreed that Richard III's claim was valid. And uh, we'll give you a, a Plantagenet tree line so that you can kind of see where it splits off and where the York line connects uh, to the Plantagenets, just as the Lancasters do as well. Um, I have a graph. I'll send it to you. We can post it. Yeah, we'll we'll post it up. We'll put it on both our social medias and have a link to one. So Richard III's claim was valid, but Henry the Sixth should remain on the throne, and Richard and his heirs would take up the throne upon Henry the Sixth's death. Thus, the York House took over the English throne from the Lancasters. The emblem of the Yorks, I was about to say Lancasters, Lord. The emblem of the Yorks was the white rose. And it was, what emblems did back in the day was they, used to, they were used to recognize either members of the House of York or followers of the House of York during the Wars of the Roses. Uh, This is for any house, actually, not just the House of York, but the white rose specifically was the emblem for the House of York. So if you saw somebody wearing a white rose, you knew they were either a York or they were a York follower. It was the the white rose was also worn by retainers and servants of the House of York. It basically symbolized which house you worked in, belonged to, or followed. That was short. I told you I kept it short because if I don't, we're going to be going forever because I timed this and I was about 45 minutes to an hour alone. 
Yeah, me too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe in editing it'll be a little shorter, but, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure you'll edit this part of the conversation out just to cut it out. No. It, we not. can make a blooper series of, of the York, uh, a blooper series one of the York episodes afterwards. We'll, we'll see what I feel like doing. <laughs> so before we get into the ma- male key players that Warren will get into, I want to first cover three really important women, English women, that are the key players of the York side. And by English, I mean, I'm not going to be talking about the wife of Henry VI, Margaret of Anjou. She is very important. But we're going to talk about specific uh, air lines through down into the ending of the War of the Roses. So first, we're going to start off. So matrilineal with, lines, you're saying? Yeah, I'm. Ju- I'm just covering the Woodvilles essentially. <laughs> so we're going to start. Really? We're going to cover the Woodvilles. Oh well, I'm covering a little bit about the Woodvilles in mine too. <laughs> um, well, there were a lot of Woodville children. There's a lot to cover. Uh, except I'm not covering the entire clan. I'm just covering three very important people. Women. Yeah. Very important women. <gasps> women in power. Oh no. <laughs> So we're going to start off with probably one of the most important, and that would be Jaquetta of Luxembourg. Now, if you remember from our previous episode on the Lancasters, she was the second wife to Henry V's younger brother, John. They married in 1432, and they were married until John passed away uh, in 1435. Now, after uh, John died and Henry VI was already on the throne, He asked her to come to England, presumably to also marry her off to another man of very equal status because she was essentially a count. She she was a very high-ranking noble. Now, there are actually three reasons why Jaquetta was particularly a very good prize for an English noble to to catch, let alone the brother of the king, is one, at the time, she was rather quite young. She was probably, I think, only close to around 20. Two, she was a cousin to the current Holy Roman Emperor of the time. Three, she was actually a descendant of Charlemagne. So she's a very, very high-ranking European noblewoman. Now, the arrangement of bringing her to England for this upcoming potential marriage to somebody actually fell to a knight named Richard Woodville, also known as Sir Richard Woodville because he's a knight. However, on the way back to England, something kind of unexpected happened between the two. They fell in love. Now, as I said, Richard isn't knight, but he's landed gentry. He's not noble, so he's sort of poor, at least poor in the eyes of all the barons and the nobles. And he was significantly below the status of Jaquetta. And knowing that Henry VI wouldn't actually let them marry, at least in public, the two of them decided to wed in secret. There's also a family history of this coming up. And when Henry found out, he was enraged that Sir Richard would go behind his back and essentially steal this potential future queen or just this high-ranking noble out from under him for making another political marriage. He found the couple, or find them, a thousand pounds 
at the time in the 1400s. So that's a lot, a lot of money. In fact, they had to sell some land in order to pay for it. Now, what's really interesting about this marriage is aside from what's to come, particularly within the lineage coming from Jacob, is that Henry allowed them to do something that wasn't typically, I guess, legal. So this is actually in, called a morganatic marriage, meaning that someone is marrying well below their status. And that usually meant that any heirs, lands, and inheritance cannot be passed on to their children. But in this case, Henry VI actually allowed it. I guess he was a pretty good, Sir Richard was in pretty good standing with Henry. And this actually played really, really well into what comes later. Richard and Jaquetta not only were incredibly in love with each other, wed secretly against the king's wishes, they went on to have 14 children. Holy McMoley. Four well, I mean, at the same time, that doesn't surprise me. Did all 14 of them survive in no. Okay, then, yeah, it doesn't count. But, but regardless, we're, we're talking, I mean, childbearing, even in today's medical world, is, can be hard enough. Imagine you don't have much of that, if anything, really. And you're bearing 14 children in the 1400s without today's medical knowledge. Yeah, that's a lot of pain. It it counts in, sorry, the it doesn't count isn't true, but it doesn't count in the sense that they didn't survive childhood, but it counts, so, so they weren't able to inherit is what I mean, but it counts in Lord above. She pushed 14 basically watermelon-sized things out of her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that was the role of women back then. It was just to have as many kids as possible, but you run the risk. I mean, even today, but much more back then, of course. But you run the risk of severe complications in childbirth, especially when you're pushing out that many. Oh, yeah. So many women died in childbirth. Most of them. Yeah. But I'm just saying 14 children. That is generally just a lot, even in today's standards. <laughs> now, what's really, yeah. really in important to remember is even though this is a morganatic marriage, the children had the father's inheritances and his lands. And with 14 children, that's a lot of children to be gaining anything, if, if they even gain anything, depending on how far down you go. Remember John Lackland, John, King John didn't have anything when he was born because he was the last son. Now, at one point, this is where things are going to get really touchy when we really get into Henry VI versus Edward, who would become Edward IV. They're both deposed twice each. So Henry's reigning and then Edward takes over and then Edward gets deposed and goes into exile. Henry comes back. Edward comes back, takes control, captures Henry yet again. It gets a little back and forth. But at one point, while Edward was in exile, Jaquetta, with her daughters and children, all sought sanctuary in Westminster Abbey. You will also see that as a common theme within this family. And Henry VI's wife, they were, I believe, in Scotland at this time. She came down to London and tried to take the city of London. And if you know much about London history, you take the city of London and you take the treasure, you take the crown. And Margaret was trying to take the crown back for her husband. And the city of London liked the Yorks. They did not like the Lancasters. And at one point, Jaquetta, although she was Lancaster, she did save the city of London from the invading forces that were being brought on by Margaret Ajou. 
And she got them to rally and, and, and fight back the rebels and was also instrumental in working with Margaret. We're not exactly sure, but there's talks that she was instrumental in communicating with her about not besieging the city of London. And it worked. She saved the city. And for that, the city was forever really grateful to Geppetta. And that also comes into play a little bit later, too. Now, quick side note. If you remember from our last episode, we had Joan of Navarre, queen mother to Henry V, accused of witchcraft by her son, Henry V, in order to gain her lands and money to fight for his wars. And then we had Eleanor Cobham, the wife of Henry V's youngest brother, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, also accused of witchcraft against her husband, not by her husband, but against her husband. And we stated that these trials would actually go on to be a precedent for future queens. We'll hear some more. And if you've never read the book, Royal Witches by Jenna Holman, go check that out because it's really, really, really good. So both Jaquetta and her eldest daughter, Elizabeth, would actually both be accused of witchcraft more than once. There's 1469, a man named Thomas Wade accused Jaquetta of actually creating lead figurines in order to use them against her own daughter and Edward IV, who was now king. So he's, he's claiming that the queen mother is plotting against her own child, who is now queen. It's, of course, ridiculous given the Woodfield man. But Jaquetta was arrested. She was taken to court. But it, found, it was found out that Thomas Wade was an ally of the Earl of Warwick, which we will absolutely talk about later on in this episode. And Warwick had taken arms against Edward, defected to the Lancastrians, and was on the side of Henry VI at this time. But during the trial, their accusations against Jaquetta and Elizabeth all completely fell apart. Jaquetta was acquitted, she was exonerated, and not only that, she demanded in writing to be publicly exonerated of the uh, accusations of witchcraft. Now, later in 1484, Richard III, now king, also plotted against the two women as well and accused them both of sorcery, claiming that they both together used love magic to make Edward fall in love with Elizabeth, thus making her queen to Edward IV. Richard even passed, or had Parliament pass an act that nullified their marriage disinheriting all of their children. There was no evidence in the second accusation of witchcraft to make anything stick either. However, by this time, Jaquetta had actually passed away. So it was just by proxy in this case. And Elizabeth currently was in no position to challenge Richard because not only did Richard have in possession both of her eldest sons, the princes in the tower, she was also pregnant and stuck in Westminster Abbey under sanctuary, so she was literally in no position to fight against Richard against this. But she would not have to wait long, as the ascension of Henry Tudor, his marriage to Elizabeth of York, Henry destroyed this document, reinstated all of his mother's-in-law's riches, so the Chiquetta's riches and lands and inheritances. She got all of her money back, and then took off all of the witchcraft charges to his mother-in-law, also Elizabeth Woodville, who we are going to talk about next. So Elizabeth Woodville, the eldest daughter of Jaquetta and Richard, was born in 1437 and had a pretty comfortable childhood. She was, again, a, the gentry, not the noble. But when she was 11, 
her father had actually risen in the ranks to become Lord Richard, or Lord Rivers, thus increasing the family inheritance. Now, when she was 15, she was married off to a man named Sir John Gray, who actually fought for the Lancastrians. And together, they had two sons, Thomas and Richard. The marriage didn't last very long, though, because a few years later, John was actually killed during the second Battle of St. Albans in 1461. So by the age of 24, Elizabeth Woodville now found herself to be both mother to two sons and a widow. Now, it isn't clear when she met the future Edward IV. There are several different stories. Some speculate they knew each other from childhood. Some say that they met in passing and different happenings at the English court. It's even thought that given her beauty, Edward may have even admired her from afar because she was considered to be one of the most beautiful women in the entire British Isle. What is known is that at some point after the death of her husband, John Gray, is when the two of them met. Now, having fought with the Lancastrians and Edward IV being of the York family, and he coming into power in 1461, put the Woodvilles in a bit of a predicament. They lasted through the current wars, but ended up on the losing side. Interestingly, though, it didn't cost them that much. In June of 1461, after Edward was already king, he actually came to their home in Groby in Leicestershire and even granted a pardon to Sir Richard Woodville, Lord Rivers, putting them on good terms with the Yorkist side, and which they then defected over to the Yorkist side. It's possible that during this event is when Elizabeth and Edward also met because now being a young widow with sons, she likely would have been staying at their family home. Regardless of how it actually happened, the prevailing theory is that in sometime in the spring of 1464, Elizabeth was trying to appeal to the courts in order to get the money and lands for her sons on their deceased father's side, which was being blocked by their mother-in-law because of course it was. It's believed that she petitioned to actually see the king about this matter in order for him to push the courts in her favor. And at one point, she happened to be in Whittlebury Forest. And when Edward rode by, whether it was intentional or unexpected, she took the opportunity to talk to the king. And it said during this interaction, Edward fell in love with the widow Elizabeth and proposed to her. Now, this put Edward in a bit of a tricky situation. He had taken the throne in 1461, and during that time had various international princesses being looked at as potential political brides for him. In fact, the Earl of Warwick, again, we'll definitely talk about him later on in this episode, happened to be in France at this exact time that Elizabeth and Edward met, working with one of the French princesses and working with uh, creating a diplomatic deal to have the French princess. Mary Edward. Because Elizabeth was considered to be a commoner in, in, in relation to the nobles and the king himself, it really wasn't a good look for the king to not only marry a widow, but a widow who also had children. It was considered acceptable for the king to marry a young virgin, most likely, at least as a first wife. And had to be noble, basically, because rarely did they want someone who already had children on the marrying into the royal line because then it could have created contention for the throne. Well, does it, at least as a first wife, you want virginal princess. Yes. Yeah. But Edward didn't care. 
He was smitten by Elizabeth. The two of them were wed in secret in 1464. And it's, it's, there's no specific date for it. It's some say May of 1464, some say June. But we do know that the Earl of Warwick found out in September of 1464, months after they secretly wed. And we'll get into that too. Now, the wedding or the marriage itself was not received very well by the English courts and the nobles. But it would prove to be an amazing match for Edward and Elizabeth both. The marriage lasted for 19 years and produced about 10 children. So we've got 14 children from her mother, Jaquetta, and 10 children from the now Queen Elizabeth. Very fertile maternal lines. And in fact, the children of Elizabeth Woodville, now Queen, would also produce the future Queen Elizabeth of York. Also, the two princes in the tower, Richard and Edward. Elizabeth Woodville would be officially crowned queen on May 26 of 1465. Now, although she wasn't well received by the nobles, of course, because she was not born into the nobility, she did become a favorite of the people. And as I mentioned before, her mother would flee to Westminster Abbey during sanctuary, as did Elizabeth. So when her husband was exiled at one point, she fled to Westminster Abbey. When Henry VI was deposed and then came back, she fled to Westminster Abbey. When Richard III took control, she fled to Westminster Abbey, a sanctuary. Now, after the death of Edward IV, his young son, or his, his eldest son, Edward, became, he was declared Edward IV. He was not crowned, but he was declared. So it's like the first step towards that. But this didn't last long because his uncle Richard deposed him. This would be Richard of Gloucester that we'll talk about later. Now, when Edward was born, he was put under the care of his uncle Richard because his father had died fairly young. I think the princes in the tower were typically around 10 and 12, I think, around this time, if I remember correctly. So Richard, his uncle, was named Lord Protectorate. So at the time of Richard's ascension to the throne to become Richard III, he already had custody of one of the princes and somehow was able to talk Elizabeth into relinquishing her other last surviving son, Richard. Now, we obviously know about the princes in the tower, even if we don't know what happened to them. We do know Richard III obviously took the throne, and that didn't last very long either. Now, in addition, as we mentioned before, uh, as I mentioned at the end of Jaquetta in terms of the witchcraft, there was also a record that was brought to light, quote-unquote record at least, saying that Edward IV had previously been engaged prior to being married to Elizabeth, therefore making their marriage nulled and all of their children illegitimate. And this is what Richard used in order to take the, the, the throne and make the claim that he was the rightful heir, not Edward V. Now, despite losing, I, I swear, if you had not heard or looked into Elizabeth Woodville in her life, look into it because it's a lot. It's incredibly stressful. She, she lost a son and her husband in battle. Another son, father, and brother were all executed by the Earl of Warwick near the end of the War of the Roses. Edward died unexpectedly, the fourth, her husband. And then both of her second, her eldest sons from Edward. We've got the two princes of the tower also died. That's a lot of male line to be dying out. 
in a very, very short amount of time. But Elizabeth's progeny would go on to make a grand comeback. After Richard III became king, there were several plots against him, as I'm sure most people who are generally familiar with the Wars of the Roses know. And one of them was to install Henry Tudor onto the throne. He had a claim to the throne on his mother's side. His mother was Margaret of Margaret Beaufort, who was also related to the Lancasters. And his role as future Henry VII not only secured, was actually secured by Elizabeth Woodville and his mother, Margaret Beaufort, and he became king in 1485. And as part of her help to help put Henry VII on the throne, Henry publicly agreed that he would marry Elizabeth Woodville's eldest daughter, Elizabeth of York, thus uniting the Lancastrians in the Yorks, bringing an end to the War of the Roses and the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. And Elizabeth Woodville, Queen Mother, would die on June 8th of 1492 at Bermondsey Abbey. And the last we're going to talk about before we get into the men is Elizabeth of York, wife of Henry VII. She was born on February 11th of 1466, and as I mentioned, the eldest daughter of Elizabeth Woodville. Additionally, she was the sister to the princes in the tower, the niece to Richard III, wife of Henry VII, and mother to Henry VIII. And one of my sources actually put it that she's the only woman in history to have been a daughter, sister, niece, wife, and mother to English kings. She just happened to be right in the middle of everything here. And because she was the eldest daughter of a king, she was raised from an early age to be a future queen, not necessarily of England, but a future queen of some kind of kingdom. When she was three, she was actually engaged to George Neville, son of the Earl of Warwick, Richard Neville. But it was soon called off when the Earl of Warwick defected to the Lancaster side. And when she was 11, she was engaged again, this time to the son of Louis XI, the Dauphin Charles. And this was due because of a treaty that was signed by Edward IV and Louis XI in 1475. However, later, by 1485, Louis reneged on the treaty and the engagement was called off. Now, in 1483, at the age of 17, Edward IV died unexpectedly, and her younger brother, Edward, the eldest of the, the, this portion of the family, was declared, though not crowned king, Edward V. But before he could be crowned, her uncle imprisoned both her younger brothers and imprisoned them in the tower. Then, of course, as we know, as I mentioned, declaring himself Richard III, and then created documents saying that her parents' marriage was illegal and none of the kids could inherit anything. What's weird is that despite claiming that she was illegitimate, there were rumors, although I'm not sure when they started, they could have started later on, not during this time, but it said that there were rumors that Richard had plans to marry his niece, Elizabeth of York. Now, in case you're not aware, there were rules for European nobility at this time that were put down by the Pope that said you could only marry other nobilities within a certain degree of blood relation. You could marry cousins. But you weren't usually allowed to marry first cousins. So it's highly unlikely that Richard ever would have really been able to marry his niece, and at least not legally. But who knows? But we also know this never actually happened. Her mother, again, Elizabeth Woodville, 
and the mother of Henry Tudor also conspired together to put Henry Tudor on the throne. And then Elizabeth of York ended up marrying Henry VII. So Henry defeated Richard in 1485, but decided to wait to wed Elizabeth until after his coronation same, that same year. They were officially married in January of 1486. She gave birth to their first son, Arthur, in September of 1486, about eight to exactly nine months later. And she was officially crowned queen a year after that on November 25th of 1487. Now, the marriage to Henry was relatively peaceful. And if you're not too much aware, and I don't know that most people really are, about the reign of Henry VII, which we will talk about in a later episode in the series, was also pretty quiet and peaceful. There really weren't a lot of wars. You had not only fighting in the War of the Roses for pretty much the previous 30 years, you also had the over 100, 100 years war. So England didn't really have a lot of money. Henry VII was actually really good with money and was also really, really successful in taxing all of the rich nobles in order to put more money into the, the English treasury to use it to help the country. And he made England very, very rich. Not as rich as Elizabeth I would go to onto, but she made it very, very, very rich. But he was he, he he was more of a diplomat than he was a warrior king. But he was also a very good father. Now their marriage was made official, and as I said, brought together the houses of uh, Lancaster and York, thus ending the very complicated and very bloody Thirty Years' War. She and Henry would go on to have at least seven children, four of which survived to adulthood. Arthur, Margaret, Henry, and Mary. And if you want to know about Margaret and Mary, go ask Lauren. <laughs> I've got a lot to say on them. You, you really do. Next episode. <laughs> not now, not, maybe after the series is over. Well, technically, I guess next episode, we are doing the tutors. Yeah, we're going to talk about them a little bit. Yeah. Now, much like previous queens, um, if the queen was available, she would sit in with her daughter, who was also giving birth and sitting in. So Elizabeth Woodville would actually be present for the birth of her grandchildren, Margaret, and the future Henry VIII, uh, too, which I think is just kind of nifty. Now, from his birth, Arthur, who's also named after the legendary King Arthur, was also raised in the ways of being king. He was the heir. Henry was the spare. When he was 15, he was actually married to Catherine of Aragon. Bet you didn't know that. <laughs> I didn't know that at first. I did. Well, well, I mean, when I first heard about Catherine of Aragon, I never knew that Edward or Henry, Henry VIII even had an older brother until a few years ago. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a tutor nerd, so. Yes, you are. Now, the marriage to Catherine of Aragon and Arthur, unfortunately, did not last very long. I think it only lasted just several months when Arthur contracted some unknown disease and, and got very sick and died and died in 1502. This left Henry, the future Henry VIII, the only surviving male of the Tudor line. Now, at the time of Arthur's death, his mother was also pregnant with their last child, Catherine. Now, unfortunately, neither of them would survive the birth. Catherine died the same day she was born on February 2nd, 1503, and her mother, Elizabeth of York, died on, on her 37th birthday on February 11th in 1503. Now, 
there isn't much in the way of documentation on the relationship between Henry VII and Elizabeth, but by all accounts that are known, it was a very loving and caring relationship. And by most accounts, it was also a very loving and caring parent and children relationship too. And in fact, there are several accounts of Henry VIII referring to the love of that his love for his mother, particularly as a child. And there's actually even a manuscript with a picture. Uh, I guess it's a, a drawing, really, that actually shows Henry VII in mourning robes sitting on the throne of England. Off to the side are Mary and Margaret, also in mourning robes, and behind them is Henry VII, Henry VIII, in a green shirt with his head buried around his arms, crying at the deathbed of his mother, uh, Elizabeth. So he's very, very, very close to his mother, and. It's actually said that once Elizabeth of York died, both Henrys became very withdrawn and very quite depressed. And although Henry VII was, as I mentioned, very tight with money in terms of spending it just willy-nilly, like, like Henry VIII was willing to do, he did spend a considerable amount of cash to give Elizabeth of York a very lavish funeral. Henry VII was always faithful to Elizabeth of York never having any mistresses, never having any mistresses after her passing, and he never remarried. And she is buried at the Lady of Chapel in Westminster Abbey. On to the men, shall we? Yeah, go ahead. Thanks. So I will be covering some of the same topics that Melissa just covered, but more from the male point of view in this sense. I'm going to be starting with Edward IV. Edward IV was born in Rouen, France on April 28th, 1442. And he was king of England from 1461 to 1470. That's one reign. Then again, from 1471 to 1483. So king, not king, king again. Edward led a revolt against Henry VI, the descendant of Henry IV, a Lancastrian, in the 1450s, and he was declared the heir to the throne in 1460. When Richard, Duke of the Duke of York, was killed in December 1460, Edward decided to take his matters into his own hands. He basically put an army together in Wales and marched on to battle, where he ended up defeating Henry VI and his supporters. Now, again, remind let me remind you, King of England, 1461. Hence, after his defeat of Henry VI, Edward was then crowned King of England on June 8, 1461, becoming King Edward IV. Edward lar largely owed his rise to the throne to his cousin, and here comes the name, Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick. Oh, yeah, didn't you mention we were going to bring that name back up? I don't know what you're oh, talking about. Yeah, um, I'll bring it up once you finish, because this is your last little section. I'll also bring it up at the very end of my summation of the York line here. But if this all sounds very confusing, just keep in mind this, the entire War of the Roses is literally just infighting between cousins of everyone that's related to Edward III. It's just infighting between cousins as to who's yeah. going to rule as king. That's all this is. It's yeah. just complicated. Which line has a better claim to the throne, basically, is it's the question that they're... Literally all this fighting. is. Yeah. So, 
as we said, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick. It turns out that Richard was actually, Richard was a great, great leader in battle. And he held the most, most power during the first years of Edward's reign. Between 1462 and 1464, there were uprisings in Northern England in favor of the Lancastrians. The Earl of Warwick, later known as the, what, what was he known as, Melissa? The Kingmaker. Yes. Fought, fought the Northern, Northerners and won. Warwick was also known to handle England's diplomacy as well at the time. This is where Melissa's and my information overlaps. While Warwick was either handling diplomacy or uprisings, Edward IV was making friends. And by that, I mean even more supporters than he already had. And it was during this time he married Elizabeth Woodville. He married her in secret. She had no power, as Melissa stated. And this really pissed off the Yorkist nobles including Warwick, which is not in your favor when Warwick is the one basically winning your battles for you. And Warwick had been in the process of trying to, trying to betroth or becoming, not Warwick himself engaged, but betroth Edward IV to a French princess. That obviously didn't happen because, well, again, Edward IV married secretly. After his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville, Edward showed her family a ton of attention, gave, gave them a lot of attention. He treated her two children from her pre previous marriage very well. He treated her five brothers and seven sisters. Yes, yeah, five brothers and seven sisters, 12 siblings, very well. And, and this basically built him a rather large following. They were not supporters such as Warwick and the nobles were in the sense of it really helped to back him up. But they would follow his word and stand by him if, any, if anyone did not agree with him. Over time, Warwick was losing his position of power, and he had basically been humiliated by Edward IV when he had been negotiating an alliance with France. And Edward, at the same time, Edward IV negotiated an alliance with Burgundy, which Burgundy was notorious for being the enemy of France at the time. Edward succeeded in his negotiations with Burgundy by marrying his sister Margaret to Duke Charles the Bold of Burgundy. And the two brothers-in-law decided to plan uh, to start a war with France. Warwick decided to take matters into his own hands in, in a kind of way, and he actually kidnapped Edward IV in July 1469. However, this did not work in Warwick's favor, as by this time, Edward had far too many supporters in London. Warwick was unable to hold on to Edward IV for, for very long. And by October 1469, Edward was free, and Warwick had to flee England. And he actually ended up in France. Once he made it to France, he switched sides. He was no longer a Yorkist, uh, did not believe in the cause of the Yorkists during the Wars of the Roses, and chose to support the Lancastrians. And he actually chose to support France in a battle against Edward IV. Warwick then invaded England in September 1470. 
This ended up being a victory for him as Edward IV then had to flee to the Netherlands in October 1470. This is what ended, yes, this is what ended Edward IV's first reign as king, or his first term as you can call it, I guess. And while in the Netherlands, of course, Edward was over there plotting to take back the English throne with his brother, the Duke of Gloucester, and his brother-in-law, the Duke of Burgundy. In March 1471, they returned to England. They had also gone into exile. Well, not the Duke of Burgundy, but Gloucester. They returned to England, and in 14, April 1471, they defeated Warwick, and Warwick was killed. At the same time that Warwick was losing his head, Henry VI's wife, the wife of the previous king, Queen Margaret, and her son Edward, the Prince of Wales, had come back to England, and they landed in Dorset. The idea of why they came back was to gain Lancastrian support in Wales, and she and her son got on horses and rode at full speed. The, they were attempting to reach Wales before Edward's forces overtook them. This was again unsuccessful as Edward IV and his sources, 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 wow, as Edward IV and his forces did catch up with them and he had a victory at Tewkesbury. And during this battle, the Battle of Tewkesbury, the majority of the Lancastrian leaders died. And Henry was also killed. Henry VI was also killed after this battle. This meant that Edward IV had secured his position as the King of England. Upon his return to the throne, Edward IV decided that he still wished to invade France. In order to do this, he needed money. And in 1474, he received a grant from Parliament in order to pay for the invasion. According to the history records, King Edward IV left for France with the largest army that has ever left English soil. The invasion was similar to the first one that they tried and it failed. And the reason this one failed is mainly because the Duke of Burgundy was completely unprepared. And France ended up actually buying out England and creating the Treaty of Piquigny. The treaty stated that Edward IV would leave France and he would receive 75,000 gold crowns for leaving France with another 50,000 gold crowns every single year after that for the remainder of his reign, just to leave France. With the money that Edward received from France, he no longer needed to rely on Parliament for money. And it was during this period, during the latter half of his second reign, he increased the flow of money with peace and he opened up trade. He even used some of his own ships, some of the royal ships to transport goods and paid merchant ships to do so as well. He also made the exchequer basically obsolete. During the last 10 years of Edward's life, there was an improvement in law enforcement, especially for places like Wales. For Wales particularly, he created what would later be known as the Council of Wales, and he used the royal estates to create this. This is where the people were either housed or where the headquarters of the Council of Wales was located, was in the royal estates. It's not known for that to really have happened. Royals did not give up their royal estates for something like that. 
Edward the Fourth was known to play around at this time. He wasn't exactly known for staying faithful. And after his death in 1483, Richard of Gloucester brought into the brought into question the validity of Edward the Fourth's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville. This is again something Melissa spoke about, and this actually ended up leading to the downfall of his surviving children. His two surviving sons, as we said, are the ones known as the princes in the tower, Edward V and his younger brother, the Richard Duke of York. He also had five daughters. So seven children surviving that we know of. On to Richard. I've got so much on Richard. Are you ready for this? I don't think you're ready. Richard III was born on October 2nd, 1452, and died on August 22nd, 1485. He was the last Plantagenet King of England. And this also means he was the last Yorkist King of England. Didn't stay in the Yorks line very long. By this point, the Plantagenet line had ruled over England since the year 1154. He is the one that is seen as the most wicked king as he usurped the throne of England from his nephew, Edward V. There's more to that, which I'll talk about later. Richard was the fourth son of Cecily Neville and Richard III, Duke of York. At the time, both these houses were very powerful. Remember Cecily Neville, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, they, they knew each other. They were family. You'll also yes. have George Neville coming up soon, too. Ooh, yes, yes. Oh, stop reminding me. I have so much. <laughs> so with, with both these, these houses, both of his parents' houses being very powerful houses, Richard had a leg up in the world. However, Richard was the youngest of all their children that survived. This was a major problem. The youngest normally didn't really have expectation that they would ever hold any power. They were never to inherit the family name. They would never inherit the dukedom. They were even more of a spare than the second child was. Him being the youngest meant that there was little hope of him having any power within the family and outside of the family as well. Another little detail is that Richard grew up with the Roars, Wars of the Roses occurring. He grew up during this time period. That was his childhood. 1452 is right before Edward begins a war. Because remember, Edward became king in 1461. He's only eight, nine years old when Edward IV becomes king. His father was also killed while battling for the throne of, at Wakefield in 1460. After Richard's father was killed, his elder brother, Edward, took up the mantle in the battle. This is going back to Edward IV. In 1461, Edward defeated the Lancastrians and became King Edward IV of England. So Edward IV that we know of is the elder brother of Richard. During his brother's battles, Richard had to find a place for refuge, and that actually ended up being in the Low Countries. Now, if you don't know what, where the Low Countries are or which countries they are, the Low Countries include places like Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. So he wasn't even able to stay home in England. Once Edward was crowned King of England, Richard became the Duke of Gloucester. He was also dubbed a Knight of the Order of the Garter. 
It's a really high knighthood for, for him to be having. At the age of eight, he also had another older brother, George, who becomes the Duke of Clarence. At this time, George and Richard are together in the Low Countries. And around 1465, Richard was sent to the Neville family. Basically, he went to the household of Richard Neville, a.k.a. the Kingmaker. He did not retain possession of the lands and such that were given to him by the king, his brother, until he was 16 years old. So he wasn't considered fit to be really the Duke of Gloucester until he became 16 years old. He was just given the title and name only. And at 16, this is also when he began his public life. This is when he started to attend court and was immersed in the political life. In 1469, that's when Warwick again began an uprising and Warwick took control of the government, pushing Edward IV off the throne. And Warwick was actually backed at this time by Edward and Richard's younger, uh, younger, Richard's older, Edward's younger brother, George, the Duke of Clarence. Unlike George, Richard stayed faithful to his brother and stayed by his side. For that short period of time that Henry VI was placed on the throne of England once again, Richard had to join Edward in exile. In 1471, when Edward IV went to battle in order to reclaim the throne, Richard was right there. Richard was with him fighting in the battles. He fought in the Battle of Barnet and he fought in the Battle of Tewkesbury. And this was the turning point for Richard, officially making him considered an adult. And due to his loyalty during this time, he gained a large amount of favor with his brother, Edward IV. And he, he was granted land that had once belonged to those on the opposing side. He even married his enemy's daughter, Anne Neville. She's the daughter of the Kingmaker, and she was also the widow, widow to Edward of Lancaster. Through Anne, Richard gained some of the land of Warwick, the Kingmaker. Majority of this land was located in the north and some of it in Wales. And what Richard did was he expanded the northern lands and became the main figurehead in the north, outranking and overruling all the other nobles that were in the north, located in the north. In 1478, his brother George was executed on charges of treason, and he actually gained much from the death of his brother. King Edward IV was not originally intending for Richard to gain as much power as he did. However, once it was established, Edward simply accepted it, which was a mistake on Edward's part. Richard gained even more favor with the nobles in Parliament during the Scottish War that occurred between 1481 and 1483. King Edward IV died on April 9th, 1483. His son, Big Edward, became Edward, King Edward V, and he was 12 years old at this time. 12 years old is an age where one is not considered ready to rule, and Richard was the Lord, Lord Protector according to the will of his brother Edward IV, and he even swore allegiance to his nephew, the young king. Richard's job as Lord Protector became useless, as the Queen Mother Elizabeth Woodville had her son, Edward V, immediately crowned king after his father's death, making it possible for her to rule in his name rather than go through Richard. On May 1st, 1483, Richard took Edward V as a hostage, basically along with his half-brother, Richard Grey, 
Richard III took them both back to London, all the while telling Edward V that he was loyal, loyal to him and made sure that he, Richard, was named Lord Protector. It's a lot of trouble to go through for power. Greedy, I guess. Elizabeth Woodville and the rest of her children went to Westminster Abbey for refuge. Again, overlapping with what Melissa was talking about. Richard continued to make preparations for the coronation of Edward V. However, before it actually happened, Richard had Hastings executed on the grounds of treasonable conspiracy. And a lot of people presume that Richard had Hastings killed in order to remove Edward V's figure's supporter. Hastings was extremely loyal to King Edward V. On June 16, 16, 1483, Richard took possession of the younger brother, also named Richard. Lots of Richards, that's all I'm going to say. And thus with both the sons of Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville in his possession, Richard took the throne. On July 6, 1483, Richard was crowned king, Richard III, along with his wife, who became Queen Anne, this is where Melissa's and my information kind of veers a little differently on the usurping of the throne. The just What I found was that the justification that Richard III put forth for the usurping of the throne was that Edward IV's children were illegitimate. This was because before marrying Elizabeth Woodville, Edward IV had been betrothed to marry a lady, Eleanor Butler. A betrothal during this era is basically a marriage. You don't break it. <laughs> well, it is speculation. It is speculation. There was zero. There's no evidence back. that he was yeah. actually engaged to anyone before Elizabeth. There's no. That's evidence. that's true. But this is the justification that Richard III put forth. Right. That's why I think he fabricated it or had somebody fabricated it and then put it towards Parliament to make it legal. Probably. I agree. I don't think. I really doubt it. With a betrothal during this era basically being like a marriage, Edward IV's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was supposedly invalid. Some people believe this story. Majority did not. I'm on the majority side. I really don't believe this actually was something. But again, there's no proof. And with the majority of people not really believing Richard III's justification, the boys posed a threat to Richard. And they were both dead at some point in 1483. We don't know when. We have very few clues to the death of the princes in the tower. However, there were two skeletons found. God, when, when were the skeletons found? In the 1900s? Oh, no. No, I think they were, I think they were the 1700s. Let me look it up. Yeah, do- double check me. But two skeletons were found in the tower of young boys. I know there was um, talk in the in in the 1900s. There was certainly talk about doing DNA tests on them, but it was refused by Queen Elizabeth. So we won't know who these skeletons actually are because the royal yeah. won't allow DNA tests of them. But let me let me look and see where they were they, when the skeletons were found during reconstruction on the tower. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. There are two skeletons of young boys and they're buried together. So a lot of people speculate that they're Edward V and his brother Richard. I can see why, but we don't know. Did did you have the information? 1674. 
own. Okay, a couple hundred years after, not that long after their deaths. No, there. And I, I knew it was either the sixteen or seventeen hundreds because I remember distinctly in my head that there was reconstruction on the tower, and they were doing some work on the staircase and found a box of bones, of human bones, or at least supposedly human bones, under. The, the stairs and they were yeah. presumed to be the princes in the tower but yeah. over time it's been speculated that maybe there's somebody else yeah but so we have zero dates of these boys death if they died in the tower when they died all we know is they basically disappeared from the tower in 1483 that's all we know could they have been locked up yeah could they have been exiled I, I possibly i really doubt it i really don't think richard would have let them go they will technically come back next episode when we talk about uh, the tudor line or at least oh, yeah or at least in the henry the seventh episode when we conclude this that they'll oh, come my. back but not in the way you might think just just wait for that episode stop teasing everyone she's but i'm really good at teasing i know you are stop it so when it came to Richard III as a king during his rule, it was something else. He did, so according to my sources, he did make peace with the former Queen Elizabeth Woodville and her family. And Edward IV had put into place forced gifts or benevolences, and they were extremely unpopular. It's gifts of money. Richard III originally got rid of them, and then he became desperate because treasury was extremely low, and he reinstated them. So this treasury was low at the time, and France was considering invading England, you know, kind of what England did to France under his brother, King Edward IV. I guess retaliation? I'm not really sure, but think of the times. Another problem was that King Richard III replaced all of the Southern nobles, who were not his supporters, with those of the North who were. In 1484, he took another blow when his son Edward died. And within the year, in 1485, Queen Anne died. It's a pretty big blow. He did think about remarriage. Here we go. He did think about remarriage with Elizabeth of York, Edward IV's daughter, yes, his niece, and as we said, was never fulfilled. And a lot of it is because many of his supporters vetoed this plan. Part of it is probably because Melissa's reasoning behind with the Pope, but also a lot of people probably didn't like that idea. And in the eyes of many, Richard was a horrible person. Just horrible. In 1483, there was a rebellion by the Woodvilles and Buckingham. A majority of the nobles uh, actually sided with this rebellion. While Richard III was successful in stopping the re rebellion, many of the supporters escaped death and fled into exile. Their hate for Richard III was so extreme that they actually had little care for who became the king once Richard was deposed, and they actually did back and promote Henry Tudor. Richard III then had Henry Tudor sent to France, where Henry actually gathered a ton of support via French and Scottish mercenaries. In 1485, Richard III met Henry Tudor in battle and fell. This was the Battle of Bosworth Field. Thus ended the reign of Richard III of England. Now, 
I can't say there's going to be a ton on Edward V. He was so young when he disappeared. So here's just a little tidbit. The eldest son of King Edward IV and Queen Elizabeth was born in Westminster Abbey in 1470. He was, in the Prince of, he was the Prince of Wales, and in 1473, he was actually sent to Wales with his mother, the Queen, to uh, Shropshire. This was the land between Wales and England, and he was sent there to, quote, rule, end quote, and this is where he would stay until his father's death. After his father's death, Edward became King Edward V on April 9th, 1483, with his uncle, Uncle Richard, as the Lord Protector. During this time, Edward V was staying in the tower, which would house him and his younger brother, also Richard, until their deaths and possibly afterwards. On June 26, 1483, Edward V became an illegitimate child of Edward IV and deposed as king with his uncle Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, becoming King Richard III. After Richard became king, Edward and his brother basically disappeared and it is suspected that Richard III had them killed in August of 1483. However, it is also said that Henry Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, or Richard III's successor, had the boys killed. We do not know the truth, and the boys did become known as the princes in the tower. Also a little tidbit, if you don't know this, Richard III's body was found. Well, his bones. They were discovered underneath a car park i mean can you beat that <laughs> it wasn't a car park when he was buried though no but it's kind of funny that cars parked on top of his grave because no one knew where he was buried well i mean for the longest time and then until modern archaeology hooray decided to look back on the records and then calculated everything go this is where he should be oh look there he is yeah they were found in Leicester, England, in September of 2012. And it also proved that Ed, uh, uh, Richard did not have a home, unlike what Shakespeare wrote either. Although he may have possibly, I think that the bones may have shown a little bit of scoliosis, but not like a hunchback like Shakespeare portrays him out to be. He wasn't the hunchback of Notre Dame. He wasn't like... <laughs> No, if you've ever watched performances of Richard III, he's got one shoulder lit, like super high than the other, and he's got a withered No, arm. Well, again, remember, Shakespeare supposedly exaggerated a ton of history. No, I know that. But because of the popularity of Shakespeare's plays and based off of the English history that by the time Shakespeare wrote them, it was 100 years after. Oh, yeah. People took it as fact, like we kind of do with things today. They took it as historical fact because they did not know any different. Yes. Because most true. people weren't also able to read and go through the history books. So people yeah. took it as historical fact, and it's been passed down as historical fact ever since. Yes. Speaking of historical facts, generally we would have likely finished this with talking about the deposition of Richard III and the takeover by Henry VII. I do want to, as we've said, we will. I do want to go into Warwick, Richard Neville, the Kingmaker, just briefly because he is, as we've mentioned, a, a very key player in this. He pretty much lasts through majority of what would be the 30 years of the War of the Roses. So I just want to give some background on him, and then I've got a little sum, summation at the end. So the Earl of Warwick was born Richard Neville 
on November 22nd of 1428 and was the eldest son to the Earl of Salisbury. By birth, he was also related to John of Gaunt via his maternal grandmother, Joan Beaufort, John of Gaunt's illegitimate daughter. Now, through his marriage to Lady Anne Beauchamp, Countess of Warwick, he was able to claim the title of the Earl of Warwick after her death in 1449. Now, as Richard Neville is the only Earl of Warwick during the major parts of the War of the Roses, I will also be referring to him by his, generally just by Warwick, because that's what he's been known for. If you recall from our last episode, there's a lot of different earls and dukes, particularly coming from the Lancastrian line, and just to make things a lot more simple with all the Richards and Henrys and everything, I just refer to them by first name and their family line. But here, Warwick is Warwick. There's only one Warwick pretty much during this entire time. So Now, during the early reign of Henry VI, Warwick actually supported Henry, but as we've mentioned, that actually changed when the Duke of Somerset was actually given land that had been previously held by the Warwick family. So the Duke of Somerset being an extreme favorite of Henry, who more or less took control of the government when Henry was ill, and also treated Henry VI more or less as a puppet king, as well as Henry VI's wife, Margaret of Anjou. Having these close advisors who really took control of the kingdom in the stead of the king without being actually king really didn't sit well with Warwick or others. And after a couple of fights with some of these nobles, he decided to change his loyalties and aid Richard, Duke of York, who was also currently making plans to oust out Henry VI. Now, during the very first battle of St. Albans in 1455, York defeated the Lancastrians. The Duke of Somerset also was killed here, and Henry VI was captured for the first time, but certainly, certainly not the last. Now, for his help in the battle, the Duke of York made Warwick captain of Calais, which was an incredibly high-ranking position. And during his time in Calais, Warwick also proved to be an incredible diplomat and incredibly politically wise. He was very good at what he did. At the Battle of Northampton, Henry VI was captured yet again, and the Duke of York and Warwick rode into London to actually meet with Parliament. Here, the Duke of York actually made a show of participation. What he did is he literally walked right up to the king's throne, put his hands on it in a certain way, and made sort of a, a threatening of sorts gesture to say, this is mine, I'm claiming it. Parliament wasn't too keen on that because you still had a living king. So they made what was called an act of accord, which was written on October 25th of 1460. And this stated that while Henry VI was still alive, the Duke of York and his sons would not have any inheritance to the crown. But once Henry VI died, their line would inherit. And in addition to that, Edward, the eldest surviving son of Richard of York, would also be named successor to Henry and act as a little protector. Now, during the Battle of Wakefield, Margaret of Anjou had amassed around 6,000 men and attacked Sandal Castle. And it was here that Warwick and his father, the Earl of Salisbury, and some of their men happened to be having Christmas dinner. 
And the successive Duke of Somerset was killed here, as well as the Richard, Duke of York, and Warwick's father, the Earl of Salisbury. After yet another capture of Henry VI at the Second Battle of St. Albans in 1461, I think it was, uh, Warwick raced to London, declared that the surviving son of Richard of York, Edward, would now become the new king, Edward IV. This was actually official after the Battle of Towton when the Lancasters lost, and Henry VI and Margaret both fled to Scotland. So they're in exile at the moment. All of this decisive wins and diplomatic workings of Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, made him the king. And it would not be the last time that he would make kings. After this decisive battle and the crowning of Edward, Warwick was also given the title of High Admiral of England and the steward of the Duchy of Lancaster, as well as many other titles and became the incredibly close advisor to Edward IV, much like the Duke of Somerset to Henry VI, and also took on many, many administrative roles. So by this time, Warwick actually was on the winning side of the war. He had amassed a great deal of lands and wealth after the death of his mother and his father. In fact, he was the second richest man in the entire country after the king, with about 7,000 pounds per year at the time. He held some of the highest titles in the land, was the right hand to the king, and was actually loved by the people of England for his very helpful diplomatic and military career. He was literally at the top of his world. But unfortunately, that would not last long, and that world would soon topple. So by 1464, just three years later, give or take, Warwick, as we've mentioned, was in negotiations on Edward's behalf in France, talking to one of the princes. French princesses and working on a, a way to align the two in a political marriage. In the spring of 1464, Edward married Elizabeth Woodville, but didn't tell his right hand man he was off to France. He didn't find out until September. And they were on good terms until this point, because when it was finally made public, it caused Warwick incredible public embarrassment because essentially. He was already on really good terms with France, doing all his diplomatic missions. But when you're trying to acquire a bride for the king and the king's already secretly married, it's all a sham and you're losing your diplomatic powers. This also created a permanent split between the two friends. In addition, as we've also mentioned, after his marriage, Edward actually began to favor his family-in-law, especially his father-in-law, who he also let give reign to make diplomatic decisions for him, even when they opposed Warwick's attempts to make diplomatic attempts for the king. Things also got worse for Warwick when he tried to marry off his daughter, Isabel. He wanted her to marry Edward's brother, George, the Duke of Clarence, but the king said no. Well, at this very last defiance, the Earl of Warwick took his daughter and George, and they all went to Calais. And they got married. And while he was in France, he also began making plans with Margaret and Henry to put Henry back on the throne. Now, in an agreement with Margaret and Henry VI, Warwick also married his daughter Anne to their son Edward, the Prince of Wales. Now, during one of the battles, Warwick actually had managed to capture Richard Woodville, father of the current queen, and two of the Woodville sons. 
and in retaliation for his assumed betrayal against Edward, all three men were beheaded, which was probably not the best of ideas. And this battle also saw Edward IV captured and imprisoned and put in Warwick Castle. The nobles, though, they didn't like this, and Edward soon had to be released, and Warwick was actually exiled from the country. But he wasn't out long. And late in 1470, Warwick returned from exile with quite a bit of Lancastrian troops and was actually instrumental in defeating Edward IV, his previous friend, and replaced Henry VI onto the throne. And much like the Duke of Somerset, the Earl of Warwick now assumed a similar role and became the Shadow King. This victory also did not last long. And on April 14th, 1471, Warwick was fighting in the Battle of Barnet, where he was killed. It's actually said that the day was quite foggy, causing very low visibility, also causing the Lancastrian troops to end up fighting each other, thinking that it was family fire. They were fighting what they thought was the enemy and ended up attacking themselves. Warwick, though, was able to actually flee the battlefield, but ended up somehow getting knocked off his horse and was killed by Warwick's troops. His body was taken to St. Paul's Cathedral, where it was laid in view so that the people could come and see that the kingmaker was actually officially dead. He was then taken to Bisham Priory, where he was buried in his family plot. His lands and offices were actually split between Edward IV's younger brothers, George, the Duke of Clarence, who was married to Warwick's daughter, Isabel, and Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Richard, would also become Richard III and would also marry Warwick's daughter Anne after Prince Edward's death in 1471. A lot of cousin marrying. <laughs> now, in terms of the interest that led the York side to really take part in what would become the War of the Roses, so after the death of Richard II, the two ruling houses of England became York and Lancaster. As we mentioned last week, uh, week, or at least the last episode. Lancaster, the family line, was founded in the 1200s and then ran down the line from Edward III through his third son, John of Gaunt. The York side of the family was created in the early 1300s and ran down from Edward III to his youngest son, Edmund of York. Edmund's son was Richard of Cambridge, and his son was Richard Duke of York. Richard's eldest son was Edward IV. Now, Richard of York believed that he had a better claim to the throne than the Lancasters because both his mother and his father uh, were actually directly both related to Edward III. Richard of York was the grandson of Edmund of York, and his mother Anne was the great-granddaughter of Edward III's second son, Lionel, which would be the line of the Dukes of Clarence. This would actually make Richard of York not only heir general, he's the direct line of the second surviving son because it died out. And he was also a direct male lineage from the York side too. So he definitely had a very good claim to the throne. And essentially, as I mentioned before, the War of the Roses is really just cousin battling against each other for the fight to rule over England. Now the Lancasters believe that they had the right to rule because they were the older branch of the family compared to the much younger Yorks. The major issue really comes into play with Henry VI. He was generally considered to be quiet, quite pious, consistently ill, possibly having some kind of mental defects, 
and was generally treated as a puppet king, as we've mentioned. Somerset ruled over Henry and made decisions for him. His wife did so too, and at one point sent the Earl of Warwick. And he wasn't also very much liked by the people, not by the nobles, not by the government. Most of them thought that he was unfit to rule. And this is really where the two ruling factions started to battle. The Lancasters had their time in the spotlight. Now the Yorks wanted control. Richard, Duke of York, wanted to claim the throne for his family, but unfortunately he was killed in battle. However, according to the Act of Accord that had been drawn up by Parliament, he and his heirs would inherit the crown upon the death of Henry VI. This also didn't sit well with either side, and they just kept battling anyway. Henry VI, in hopes of defeating Edward and putting his own son, Edward the Prince of Wales, on the throne, that was his goal. Edward of York wanted to defeat Henry VI and have his family put on the throne, which did happen because he became Edward IV. And it's also likely that with Henry being mentally unfit to fight, or rule even, Edward didn't want to wait until Henry stepped his claim. Now, <laughs> while you were talking earlier, I wrote this down. Yeah, there's a lot of repetitive names here, and there's it's not really going to get any easier when we talk about the Tudor lineage next week, or next episode, whatever we talk. <laughs> but I think I found a way to make it somewhat simple. So give me your thoughts on this. Because essentially, as I've said, it's all cousin warring. And they're all battling for the right to rule. And every single claimant to the throne can trace the lineage back to Edward III. Correct? Correct. Okay. So Edward III had four adult surviving sons. The first, his eldest being Edward. His second eldest being Lionel, the Duke of Clarence. Third being John of Thont of the Lancasters, and the fourth being Edmund, the Duke of York. Yes? Yes. Okay. So the first line from the first son didn't last very long. So Edward, the, the eldest surviving son of Edward, or of, of Edward III, also known as the Black Prince, died before he could rule, but he did have a son, the future King Richard II. But Richard II had no biological heirs. So technically, that would then fall to any of the family of the second son. But that didn't really happen either. <laughs> technically, it almost did. So this is where Lionel comes into play. So Lionel, Duke of Clarence, he also died early and was not able to take control. But he was survived by his daughter, Philippa. She was married into the Mortimers. And if you remember from last episode, of this, we mentioned Edward Mortimer, and he was the heir apparent for Richard II. They weren't biological, but he was his nephew, essentially. Yes. Right. Now, he never made it to the throne, obviously, uh, and he was he also died in battle. Now, his younger sister Anne married Richard III, the Duke of Cambridge. They had a son, Richard III, Duke of York. So now the Mortimers and the Duke of Clarence have now merged into the York family line. Third son, we have John of Gaunt. His daughter, Blanche, he had no surviving sons, but his, his eldest daughter, Blanche, was mother to Henry IV. 
who usurped and took the throne after the death of Henry II, or Richard II. Henry IV was survived by his son, Henry V, who was survived by his son, Henry VI. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, later on, John of Gauntland married his third wife, Catherine Swinford, and their children would actually take the last name of Beaufort, which will come into play next episode. Because he 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 acquired the yes. the dukedom of Beaufort, therefore the children had the last name Beaufort, and this is where we get the Tudors. So the Tudors, the Lancasters, and the Yorks are all cousins, coming from one great grandfather, kind of a one king, John of Gaunt, and his wife Catherine. Their first son was John Beaufort, first Duke of Somerset. And also the very close advisor, that same Duke of Somerset to Henry VI, his cousin. John, the first Duke of Somerset, had a daughter named Margaret Beaufort. Margaret Beaufort is mother to Henry Tudor. Mm-hmm. And if you're wondering how the Beauforts married into the Tudors, this is also getting into cousin marrying. Her husband, Edmund Tudor, was the son of Owen Tudor. Owen Tudor married Catherine of Valois, who was the widowed queen of Henry V, mother to Henry VI, which is where the Tudors take their family lineage from and claim that they have a right to the throne. Now, with the fourth son, Edmund, Duke of York, he married Isabella, and their son was uh, Richard III, the Duke of Cambridge. The Duke of Cambridge had a son, Richard of York, who tried to usurp and take control for Henry VI. He married Cecily Neville, as we talked about Richard Neville, Anne Neville, and George Neville. And Richard, Duke of York, would bear three sons, Edward IV, George, Duke of Clarence, and also Richard III. And then it ended with the Tudors taking over. They are all Plantagenets. Does that make it a little more clear when you just sort of step by step and just talk about the the heirs? A little bit, but I think for those of us, I'm a very visual person. I need to see the line as it's going down. So like we said, we'll put up a chart for everybody to access, access one so you can see everybody from Edward III down. Or else it's it's just not going to make sense. You had... One brother's family marrying into another brother's family and continuing the York line. Then you have the Lancasters marrying into the Beauforts, creating the Tudor line, and then it all goes from there. Oh, what a what a little black hole that is. <laughs> what a lot of complicated mess that is. That'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. If we didn't confuse you, <laughs> listen to it again. and we do hope to see you next week when we trek through history but just to let you know you can check out our social medias we do have our facebook and instagram pages which are history explains it all underscore podcast where we post either a today in history or an archaeology in the news woohoo we also post all of our sources the day that we post the episode as well so you can access all that information there and sometimes we have polls on instagram on what episode we want to know which one you want to hear about so 
check those out when they go up as well and vote vote when they go out it'll be a little bit because of this series but in the meantime look forward to one yeah. you can also contact us through our email at history explains all at gmail.com you got suggestions send them our way there suggestions any information if you can also leave us a rate and review on apple Podcasts. it's how people find us if you do we'll read it yes yes we will so that'll be all for this episode and we hope to see you next week as we trek through history too <laughs> are we gonna get it right this time i don't know no. one two three <laughs> explain, explain it all, it all. bye Bye.